0: Hey everyone, welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host Jesse Single. Um, I hope everyone is having a good weekend. I guess it's Sunday night. I've uh, I got back from traveling a little more than a week ago. I've like only just regained my ability to know what day it is, so uh, I'm getting there. Um, I'm mostly going to take your calls. I wanted to talk a little bit about something whose tab I just closed, so so bear with me. This is super professional. Um, It was this uh, tweet thread that everyone is glowing over and spreading around uh, by a guy named Thomas Zimmer. He's a uh, Georgetown professor. Um, So Nate Silver tweeted, circa 1950, 2015, both sides-ism was a shitty heuristic, but I've grown less confident since then, that the alternatives are better. So, silver is basically—he's not endorsing both sidesism, but he's saying there's something to both sidesism. Both sidesism just being like whatever is being discussed. Both sides do it um, since 2015. I, I would endorse a version of this just because like I think there's obviously. You know, the Republican, Party, excuse me, the Republican Party has gone totally crazy um, with Trumpism. I don't think the left has gone crazy in quite the same way, but I obviously think we have some problems with, like, a liberalism and authoritarian tendencies, um, although the details vary and matter. The details matter a lot. You can't speak in, in broad strokes. Anyway, this launched an epic tweet storm from Thomas Zimmer, a Georgetown University professor. I'll just read a little bit of it because it really – it bugged me because it gets a, um, certain aspects of this sort of – for lack, very severe lack of a better term, anti-woke versus anti-anti-woke discourse. Imagine looking at the path Republicans have taken since 2015 and thinking, you know what we need more of? Both sides false equivalents. It's a proper tell me who you really are moment from one of the high priests of white dude, increasingly reactionary centrism. So Nate Silver is a, a white, increasingly reactionary centrist. As is often the case with Silver and so typical of the white male reactionary centrist pundit brotherhood, what is presented here as bold out of the box truth telling is little more than silly contrarianism in style and well in line with white elite orthodoxy in substance. Silver is a key figure in a group of ostensibly liberal pundits who have become widely revered apostles of centrist realignment in American politics. Almost all of them are white men in their late to mid, late thirties to mid forties. Silver, Iglesias, Barrow, meaning Josh Barrow Monk, meaning Yasha Monk. This type of pundit operates from the conviction that he is capable of superior judgment across a wide variety of fields and subjects, from pandemic response to American history, from the climate crisis to how Parentheses not to tackle racism. These self-proclaimed arbiters of reason owe much of their permanent, pr- prominent status to the idea that they are unbiased, dispassionate truth tellers, all about data, all about objectivity, brave enough to give us, us the unvarnished facts in a heroic effort against conventional wisdom. Um, there's a lot here, and then obviously I'm reacting to this partly because uh, I sort of sometimes get lumped in with the other guys he's criticizing. As I pointed out to him. Um, Everything he's saying about, like, folks who turn themselves into bold truth tellers, these are critiques you could just make of pundits. These are critiques you could make of anyone who regularly has to produce opinion journalism. Um, I'll just read my tweet to him. I know that's obnoxious, but I said, you're describing – I replied to him and said, you're describing pundits. Everything you're saying is clearly applicable to woke pundits, not my favorite term. They just come to conclusions you agree with so you don't get mad at them. Whole point of the 1619 Project, whatever its merits, was bold, unvarnished truth Um I said unarnished because un-arnished, I don't know what to type, but that was the point of the 1619 Project. It was to be contrarian. It was to say, in part, everyone thinks the American Revolution was about this one thing. Actually, it was about slavery. So um, I find this so obnoxious because he's really just taking something that is true of pundits in general, and he's just – applying it to like anti-woke people. Um, I don't even think anti-woke like captures Matt Iglesias' views on this stuff, but it's really obnoxious. And I've heard this a lot because this idea that like this subset of pundits is particularly above it all and above the fray and they think they're right about everything and they're overconfident. You can apply that to so many people who are just straightforwardly woke, for lack of a better word. There's so much overclaiming. There's so much overconfidence. These problems are just endemic in punditry and we should like encourage people to be less overconfident about everything. I I don't think folks like Nate Silver and Matt Iglesias are particularly bad at that stuff. I Also, the idea that they're pushing for a centrist realignment when Iglesias in particular, you think he wants a centrist outcome of like divided control. It's just a lot of what happens is that. It's easier to put someone in a box and to say that that's a bad box than it is to respond to their actual arguments. That's especially true if you're dealing with folks like Iglesias or Nate Silver, who, whatever you think about them, they're not dumb. They're good at constructing arguments. Um, so you see folks, the two things they do is they put them in boxes and they only respond to tweets. Um, I've seen this with my own work. Folks will just take like the tweets that, you know, oftentimes I should have provided more context, but there's like none of the actually responding to arguments you actually make. It's just like, well, they're that, uh, the shitty, you know, anti-woke type. So we already know that they're wrong about everything and we can, um, you know, just, just disregard them without engaging in their arguments. Um, yeah. Sean Sedgwick says also very convenient to just ignore the existence of McWhorter, Hughes and Lowry. Uh, yeah. Well, so the other thing is, is that whole, like, it's shitty to say that, the, the operant factor here, the causal factor is them being white because they they're, most white Americans are conservative, for one thing. Second, um, Zimmer's own politics are the politics of like white liberal elites. W- wokeness, or whatever we're calling it, is very much a white thing. I mean, I've written about this in the context of Dave Chappelle where Chappelle's argument is basically like, the people who decide who you are and aren't allowed to make fun of that, that that's it's white people. The whole, the whole thing of like woke white people accusing other people of being white is so weird because the, the center of political power for wokeness, I'll keep saying for lack of a better term, it's, it's annoying. I don't know what else to call it. The center of political power there is white liberals with money. I mean, that's it's, it's wealthy white liberals who promote wokeness. So, um, yeah, I, I just find this so ridiculous. And it's, it's just, and I thought people I otherwise respect like applauding this thread, but it's just, um, I don't know, it's bullshit. Um, folks should get in the queue. I'll take whatever questions or comments you want. There was one other thing I wanted to talk about first. I'm very disorganized, I need to see if I can find it. Oh, I highly recommend people, um, well, I'm sort of scooping myself here. The Latest on the Media has a segment about the uh, Colorado shooting and about how the Colorado shooting can be pinned on rising anti-LGBT sentiment. And all I'll say, it is very interesting to listen to that article and then compare it to a segment Bob Garfield, the old co-host, did with a uh, reporter I know named Melissa Jelson on the Pulse nightclub shooting. Because in that old segment from... I don't have it up, I think 2016, on the media was very capable of saying like this popular social justice narrative about mass shooting is false and we shouldn't spread it. And four and a half years later, 2018 was that segment, uh, four and a half years later, they've completely lost the ability to do that. It's just like everything they're saying is completely indistinguishable from activism. And what was most disturbing is on the media and Brooke Gladstone um, Sympathetically presenting the view, you know that you're partly responsible for the massacre if you refuse to accept that there's great evidence for blockers and hormones. I think I talked this about this yesterday a little bit, but the ever expanding number of opinions that are linked to violence, uh, sometimes suicides, sometimes mass shootings it's not going to work. Like people aren't that dumb. I understand on Twitter, this is like a good rhetorical tool to use against people, but no sane person who isn't Twitter brain melted thinks that if you report on the controversy over puberty blockers, you're responsible or partly responsible for a mass shooting. It's just such a ridiculous and offensive thing to say. And I think it's an example of like hysterical Tumblr discourse really warming its way into mainstream institutions. Um, and leading to very, very uh, bad arguments. So that was very frustrating to see. Um, Okay, some folks should get in the queue because I'm sort of running out of the stuff I wanted to spiel about. Happy to talk about this or anything else. Um, I am also giving a talk uh, at MIT tomorrow, Alex Byron, he's a philosophy professor there. Talk about some sort of left-wing epistemic closure and, and fake news type stuff, um, which caused me to reignite the uh, hey, the Jacob Blake debate on Twitter, which was a mistake that got people mad. But i um, be happy to discuss that too. It's just an area where there's still like so much misunderstanding uh, and it's just really bad um, is what it comes down to. The extent, oh, wait, I didn't allow everyone to call in. I thought I hit that would explain the lack of callers. All right, try now, guys, if you were uh, trying to call in. Um, the extent to which certain basic facts about the Jacob Lake shooting just haven't, like, trickled down to people is really, really bad. And, you know, it just points to, you know, I keep hitting it to public. There we go. I think I updated it successfully. Let's see. Um, whether or not you're, if you're, if you, if you're trying to get in the queue and you can't, uh, give me a thumbs up or say something in the chat. Every time I go back to the, um, uh, settings, it says it's stuck on limited. Um, the guy wrote his history professor who spent most of 2020 about COVID. Um, uh, yeah. oh, Oh, what I was saying was the, uh. The Jacob Blake stuff, which most directly led to rioting in Kenosha uh, and death. Okay, it's set to public. So folks should just get in the queue. Um, So if you look at what happened with Jacob Blake, there are policy questions there that maybe are worth talking about. And... One of them is like, for example, uh, police protocol, police regulations in Kenosha and a lot of places is that if you encounter someone who has a warrant, you sort of have to arrest them. You don't have the discretion to not arrest them. Uh, Also, in this particular case, uh, Blake was about to drive off with kids um, or a kid in the car. And the police had a right to shoot him to prevent him from doing that because it would have led to a high speed chase. Those are the kinds of debates you can have if you want to. I'm not sure like, where I would fall on that stuff. But if the entire conversation is just this guy, they attempted to execute him for no reason, they paralyzed him, he didn't do anything wrong, none of which is true if you look into what actually happened, that really does prevent any sort of um, meaningful policy debate. And the extent to which like, Democratic presidential candidates jumped on that bandwagon and I think really exacerbated things, and, and I don't know, man, you want to talk about rhetoric that contributes to violence. If you have a bunch of people immediately publicly jumping to conclusions and saying that police tried to kill someone for no reason, doesn't that lead to riots and violence? I guess I remain very confused about which forms of rhetoric do and don't lead to violence. Um, I guess if if reporting on a scientific controversy leads to a mass shooting, I would think spreading misinformation about a police shooting could lead to, uh, to rioting, but I, maybe I'm being too cute about that. Um, So, yeah, that was uh, bad, but I'm going to talk about that a little bit tomorrow at the um, MIT event. Um, Wait, there's one other thing. People are accusing the uh, Zimmer historian guy of blocking a lot of people, which is my experience. I you're allowed to block people, but if you, if you block people rather than answer basic questions about your viral threat, I think that's, uh, just bad practice. Um, okay. I've talked for 50 minutes. Folks should just get in the queue with questions or comments because I did not prepare more than 50 minutes because this is usually, uh, a call-in show driven by calling in. Um, one other thing. Oh, actually, the one other point I want to make is that um, I also feel like people are being trained to come up with reasons to not engage in debate with people they disagree with. I also got into it with some like environmental reporter on the Zimmer uh, front. But um, she had this expansive psychological theory to explain the views of folks like Nate Silver and Josh Barrow. And she was basically like, uh, they're upset that they have to give up their white male privilege, basically, That's a common argument. Uh, I don't really recognize that in myself. I don't really have the sense like I think a lot of journalists come from privileged backgrounds and I, I don't really get the sense that that's happening. I can't really imagine that being what's driving my own interests and in stuff, although I guess you never know. We can't know what our own motivations are. But it's such like a shitty cop out to be like, oh yeah, Nate Silver believes that because he's scared of losing his white privilege. It's it's sort of like the kind of cartoonish psychologizing I associate with like George W. Bush, where it's like uh, the 9-11 hijackers hate us for our freedom. They're just jealous because we have freedom and that's why they hate us. And it's just not, I don't know if you want to understand someone you disagree with, whether it's a terrorist or uh, Nate Silver, who's obviously worse than a terrorist you should make uh, an effort to actually meet them where they are and to figure out where they're coming from. And I think a lot of younger writers are being trained to do something like the opposite of that, where you, instead of figuring out what's wrong with their argument, you just figure out a box to put them in or a way to typecast them. Um, And uh, that's um, not good. It's just, I don't know. There's a lot of like bad intellectual and epistemic habits emerging. I feel like, I always feel like a uh, crank when I talk about this, but it, it just seems pretty obvious. And I think part of it's just structural because fewer and fewer people are learning to do actual journalism, and more and more people are taking stabs at punditry because that's where, you know, there's technically more jobs there. Um, they're just very poorly paying. And uh... all right, Tom, go ahead.
1: Hey, Jesse, can you hear me okay?
0: I can. How's it going?
1: Good, man. Hey, I just read the Zimmer thread. I just, I mean, just to boil it down, it seems like with the silver thing and the Barrow thing, that it, the assumption is that these guys were fake conservatives, and it wasn't until they uh, basically uh, got it got too close to them that they shed their liberal identity, and then they suddenly changed into this, uh, you know, right wing, you know, you know, contrivance. Get that? I don't understand. Like, why? Like, it it just seems like there's almost an Orwellian thing where it's like the party has always been this this radical. And I was like, I don't know. I'm I've been pretty liberal for most of my life. Grew up in New York, and you know, I lived in your neighborhood for a bit. And it just doesn't seem that. Like, it just seems like there's a a weird blind spot. Say, like maybe maybe things have changed on the left a little bit for people like me and people like yourself. I don't know. I mean,
0: yeah. Well, so it's it's interesting. They'll often do it like, oh, this is a masked off moment for them. That's the term you hear Yeah, about. And and masked yeah. off suggests like whatever they're mad about was there underneath all the time. And I think it's exactly what you're saying. If you have a complete refusal to like interrogate your own side and its excesses and where it's gotten weird, that's – you're going to be your conclusion. There's nothing wrong. It's like it's not me. It's the children who are wrong. Um, Like that Simpsons line. So I think like – Folks like Nate Silver, my sense is like as stuff has gotten weirder on the left, they've started reacting to that. I know that's happened with Matt Iglesias because seven years ago, I don't think he was interested in the culture wars. And then some crazy shit happened to him at Vox that really pushed him in that direction. So, yeah, feel free. Pretend, pretend Matt Iglesias, who is probably 85th percentile toward being on the left by an American spectrum, pretend he's a reactionary. That's going to get you really far. It's just it seems what- stupid. It's, it's just online clout.
1: Well, what I don't understand is, you know, I like the facts and figures of what got me into Nate for a while, and I got out of Nate for a little bit um, because I like the science and, you know, I understand, the, you know, the statistics. But what I don't understand is, you know, everything I've been looking back on from, you know, 2016, 2018, 2020, 2022, all these races that came up, it seems like, you know, by and large, I hate using the demographics like this, you know, minorities are voting more and more conservatively, and it doesn't seem like there's a there's a – an adequate response from the left as to why that's happening and these are the people that they're supposedly championing um, and, you know, the only excuse I have is that education has failed these people and, you know, they're voting against their own interests which seems really pejorative and really condescending but uh, it also just doesn't make any sense to me as to why they wouldn't be a little bit more curious to why their message is more and more becoming less... Uh, you know, interesting to, you know, the folks that they're supposedly standing up for. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I um, No, I think that's right. And I think, uh, I mean, it does vary. Like, Black Americans, I think, are still overwhelmingly Democrat. But there was, between 2016 and 2020, I think, um, among both Black and Latino Americans, a shift toward Trump. And uh, I agree completely. The lack of any sort of curiosity there. I mean, one. I guess part of it is just like there's a real misunderstanding of like social conservatism and the fact to which like the extent to which like, you know, in some black and Latino communities, that's really a force in a way. It's just not in the same way among white Democrats. I think that's part of it. But so you're saying you don't feel like Nate Silver has really done a good job explaining that or my misunderstanding?
1: No, it's not just Nate Silver. It's, it's more like the, the Zimmerman, uh, a Zimmer guy. It's, it's like, you know, aren't you even curious as to what's going on here right, within right. Oh, these yeah, quote-unquote communities?
0: Yes. No, dude, it's like if, if, if this is an increasingly fascist, racist party, why are they getting a bigger and bigger chair of those voting blocks? It, it just makes no sense. And you're right, there's no curiosity about that at all.
1: That's what I don't understand. I'm, 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 and if anything, I'm like, well, hey, this is, I guess, good news. Good news, everyone. Um, culture war win for everyone. Uh, the the Republicans are becoming more inclusive. Isn't that yeah. great? I mean, you know, like, shouldn't we celebrate? And if anything, they're like, no. If anything, they're ignorant and dumb. I was like, whoa, geez. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there has been a that, That's hard to.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I, so since 2016, it's just been ratcheting up the states more and more about how fascist the Republican Party is. And and people, I guess, are very surprised that that doesn't work, that the 500th time you call someone a fascist, uh, other people stop paying attention to you. So yeah, there's just no introspection. And there's no reflection. And, you know, there doesn't need to be like he's a I think he's a visiting professor. but He's a visiting professor at Georgetown. He'll continue to be employed and he's getting good social feedback and reputational benefits. So no one no one's incentivized to be curious about this stuff.
1: Um, oh, fair enough. I, yeah. I guess so. But thanks for the, ta- the time.
0: Thanks for the Appreciate it
1: yeah
0: Caleb what's
2: up hello hey hey hey
0: it's Caleb
2: it's uh, something about the unwillingness to debate anyone that you mentioned earlier this year I got an email for an from an acquaintance about uh, a panel about uh, prison abolition and I saw that despite the fact that the most pop at the black, it was about prison abolition in the black community for, forgive me. I don't have the actual um, uh, description uh, in front of me, but uh, despite the fact that the, the most pop common opinion among the African American community is that they want police funding to stay the same, but policing to change every single panelist on this panel was for abolishing the police entirely <laughs> that's
0: about it that sounds about right
2: yeah and it's just that like if you're not even going to have like the most common uh position is the this community represented like why are you even having this are, are you just like retreating into the bubble there, that, that makes
0: that I forget if it was the Washington Post or the LA Times, I think it was the Washington Post. He pointed out that they just ran a column about affirmative action where they said they pointed out that most people of color are against affirmative action, but they chalk that up to right-wing propaganda because it's, <laughs> it's impossible that people just don't like. It's, it's sort of similar here. Like People just refuse to accept their views are unpopular and you might have to persuade people. And What better way to do that than to have a panel where you don't have any dissent whatsoever?
2: Yeah it's just that I'm someone who um uh I'm someone who thinks that the US prison population is like it's like far far too big it's, it should be way lower but it's yeah. just that rubbed me the horribly the wrong way and
0: yeah man. the the just... the amount of um airtime especially during the peak of the 2020 stuff given to prison abolition uh and then you look at what other opinions are not represented in media. I, this is a class thing. I, I think the folks who are into prison abolition are overwhelmingly more privileged. Uh, and they're sort of using poor and oppressed people like the way a ventriloquist uses a uh, puppet. I mean, I don't want to over You know what it really reminds me of?
2: What? It reminds me of Get Out, where they like literally put white people's minds into black people's <laughs> bodies. But so maybe that's let's go probably going a little far. but No,
0: I mean, there, the, what I find disingenuous is you'll hear, like, white editors talk about, you know, providing more people of color voices and, and column inches and stuff, which is great. But those slots tend to go to folks who have the same political views as, like, college-educated white people, white liberals. Yeah, it's,
2: yeah I mean, it's, it's a lot of uh, people with – from well-off roots in the Caribbean or – African countries,
0: cool. yeah, they were like not, yeah, to, to, not disproportionately not. from that group, and and there's reasons for that because it's it's hard to get you know find good, bad, yeah, like, the, the the competition for these slots is dominated by wealthier people. You if you if you're hiring at New York Magazine, you are not going to get a lot of applications from genuinely low income black people. It's just a yeah. fact, so it's a challenge, but it's just just don't claim to speak for oppressed people when you're just hiring the folks who went to the same schools you did. That's my
2: okay. Problem. All right. Thanks, Jesse. Bye. Thanks,
0: Maddie, what's up?
2: Hey, how's it going? Um,
0: good. Home.
3: First, very important question. Where did you land on the question of North Shore pizza places?
0: Um, I think I'm just going to uh, Santarpio's. Uh, I'm going with a guy who is uh, um. He immigrated here recently, and he's a buddy who i met through a – like a prison pen pal program. This is the only good thing I've ever done in my life. I'm (laughs) glad I did it. Uh, So uh, I figured I'd take him to get good pizza. He comes from a place that does not have pizza, which is nightmarish to me. I think that's the basis of his asylum claim is he didn't have pizza where he came from. Uh, So I think we're doing Santarpios, (laughs) which I know is just an offshoot of the East Boston one. If there's some other amazing pizza place in the North Shore, I'm all ears.
3: Okay, cool. Um, big fan of Linfield House of Pizza, if you make it up that way, but that's sort of nested away. Um mm-hmm. also if they abolished prisons, you never could have had a prison towel So that's exactly. terrible.
0: Where would we be? Um
3: But my my sort of more substantive question for you, I guess, is I do think that the Zimmer thread was largely you know, bullshit, but I think I do wonder if you sort of tapped into something that's a little bit true about not all centrists but some centrists which is sort of this this like false assumption that taking a position in the center has some sort of correctness to it because it's not extreme right I think in the way that like sometimes people say people actually taking the position on the left has some sort of like moral righteousness to it right because you're like fighting for the rights of the the oppressed or whatever it is I, I do wonder if you sort of tapped into what can be a kind of frustrating, like, moderate way of argumentation, which is because I'm not, you know, aligning on either side, there must be something
0: like that sort of Aristotelian Aristotle- Aristotle- yeah. thing of like the middle <laughs> has to be the best path. Yeah, I, I think there's, um, no, I think there's something to that. I guess my counterpoint would be we're mostly talking about Twitter discourse, he really only references Twitter discourse, <laughs> and on Twitter that's probably a better heuristic to like go to the middle of the the takes you see. Cause the takes you see are so consistently dumb and radical and out there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in real life, right? No, I don't think centrist politics is, is automatically the way to go. I guess I just think, I don't know, Barrow, I guess is like sort of a moderate conservative or centrist silver, he's more of a data wonk than a guy with like political preferences. Matt Iglesias is like significantly to the left in terms of right. like, the American political debate. He doesn't even adopt centrist position. So yeah, I guess my counter, my, my argument would be you're maybe uh, inserting in his mouth a more intelligent argument than the one he actually made.
3: That's fair. Yeah. I guess if you spend all your time on like liberal, like very left Twitter, then like 85% Matt Iglesias is the center of what you experience. So. <laughs> right. Well,
0: <it's laughs> because if you don't want to abolish the police, you're a fascist. Exactly. Yeah. Good luck on the pizza. Thank you, Maddie. I should have been clear when I said prison pen pal. I mean, it doesn't matter, but he, I met him through this awesome program where you can get hooked up with, um, asylum detainees. So this guy came here from Cameroon and was thrown in jail, uh, for an extended period. And I met him through this, uh, prison pen pal program. It's, it's a great program, but you, you sort of, for the most part, need Spanish. Cameroon has an English speaking minority. That's how I got to know him, even though I don't do any other languages too much
4: talking what's up timothy hey uh what's up i uh i just wanted to mention that first call almost felt like a like a jerky boys bit with the clanking glasses around and the noise that almost sounded like someone farting in the background so <laughs> <Yeah>. just a, <laughs> fyi that was a lot of fun i know you mentioned jerky boys recently on the podcast so i don't think um, i did i never actually got into jerky boys Ah uh, maybe I'm thinking of someone else. I apologize for no, uh, okay. misrepresenting you there. Um, you. but uh, the one the thing that crossed my mind listening kind of talking about defund and the you know the I guess the black community and all that like i I grew up in a largely Hispanic community, so listening to people talk about like how Hispanic people are conservative and then I was I have close family members who are black or married into my family that are black and all this and like I think that there's like there is a lot of acting as if they have no concept of, like, deeper class consciousness that's, like, overlooks, like, that they have a basic intuition. A lot of people in the communities have a basic intuition of class consciousness, which is, like, my whole life I've worked union. I'm, like, 30 years old in that range. I've worked, like, 20 years. I've never had a non-union job. And every person of color I've ever worked with basically has, like, the the the, the basic tenets of class consciousness, which is that, like, they think that everybody's lazy as shit but, uh, deserves more money. Um, so I think that when you say like, they don't think that we should defund the police, I think what they mean is like the police deserve the money that they make, but there should be other programs as well. If you really talk to people. So I just think that gets overlooked. And I just wonder what you think about that where people like kind of, they take the two sides of it without really like looking at the middle ground there, which is that I think that most people, if you ask them, they say like the cops deserve the money that they get, but also we should have other programs too.
0: Yeah, well so my I'm most familiar with just like what happens if you ask black americans that basic question of do you want more police, fewer police or the same number in your neighborhood and uh it's usually 60% want to keep police presence the same, 20% want more, 20% want fewer. I haven't I haven't really asked about or sorry, I'm not familiar of anyone who's asked about like police salary per se. I know there's some crazy stuff that goes on with, like, police pensions and unions and stuff, so I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, my argument all along has just been that, uh, you know, we're lumping huge racial groups together, even more so Hispanic groups, because they're just – they're a lot – way more than our recent immigrants. They're coming from countries that are sometimes thousands of miles apart. It's just ridiculous. But with black Americans, it seems like the overall, the polling simply suggests They feel like the police often abuse them or mistreat them but they also want the police there because they view police as an important anti-crime measure and a lot of them live in high crime neighborhoods so um this idea that it's like a fundamentally you know pro-black opinion to want the police severely defunded or abolished that that's what bugs me
4: yeah i just don't know i don't know that anybody makes that argument right i think that the argument that they make more is that like the police system we have right now has you know statistically more negative outcomes for the black community it is like kind of you know telling them what they want or whatever but i guess it what it goes back to me is like my basic experience as i said as being like a a union worker as a worker i know that that's like you know that's a really weird identitarian politics to take (laughs) um but just to say that like as a worker, when anyone I interact with at my job, they're like, yeah, man, there's too much fucking work. And I think that they probably agree. That's why when you ask them, you know, the, in the poll and you say, do you think that there should be more police? They're probably like, hell yeah, because they're overworked just like me.
0: Yeah, I'm just curious if they're answering the question with that in mind versus answering it in, in from the point of view of police as a public service and whether or not they want more of it. But I, I, what you're saying definitely makes sense to me.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's, again, that's just what what it feels like to me based on my anecdotal experience throughout it and it, again being in the public sector like so the union thing it's always weird because i i support all unions across the board even the police union which does become sticky because so many of my leftist friends who seem to you know i'm a leftist so yeah. what am i saying but you know, don't my like other pe- they don't like police unions. yeah they'll be like oh the police, police union yeah exactly the police union is bad it's the only union that's bad and i'm kind of like actually no the police union's great yeah. um it just has some negatives to it, but so does every fucking unit. I mean,
0: to me, me, Um, the interesting part of the police and class debate is, like, in places like New York City, where can you get a better job without a degree or without an elite degree than in the police department? I mean, it's like, it is an engine of this sort of, like, class mobility that you just is diminishing right as like as manufacturing jobs flee like it, police are sort of the only game in town in, in certain places if you want that level of like uh secure employment and you don't have credentials right
4: right it's it's that and it's other public sector work like the right. post office which is under attack and schools which are under you know underfunded and being cut and and then that's where yeah like you get into the the conversation about like you know, school choice and charter schools and all of that stuff that's the kind of the other side of it which you feel like is not directed towards the same communities when they use that so it's kind of it's divide and conquer and that just feels like again it comes down to the importance of uh, of solidarity and people realizing that we're all on the same side here against you know who are we against and it's you know it's not jesse signal unfortunately uh, even though it's like really easy to point our finger at you know I, I, the, your, your friends that you just went on your trip to visit but it's like it's actually just the people who are in charge of the you know these two pronged double headed attack on public sector workers <laughs> Do they like yeah. take both sides Like cops are killing all black people and uh, you know and the schools are teaching black people that they're not allowed to like you know be authentically themselves anymore somehow
0: yeah it um, was a thoughtful call Timothy I appreciate it
4: yeah either way thank you and uh, yeah I guess have a good one you
0: too all right, let's finish up with James. Uh, what's up, James?
5: Hello, can you hear me? Okay. Hi, uh, I just wanted to pick your brains on your, your social psychology sort of knowledge because I wanted to ask you about parasocial relationships because I'm a big fan of um, a writer called Jesse Single. I read your newsletter. I listen to your podcast. I hate that guy. He's, I, he's, um, he's a jerk. I, <laughs> I, I go back and listen to your call-in shows because they're often very late at night here in Britain. Um, and is that weird to you that I'm, I'm a Jesse single super fan who consumes all of your content and have you radicalized me? (laughs) Have I radicalized you? That's a question. Uh, I I guess I, I don't know. I'm just wondering from your perspective, is it weird that people consume that much of your content? Is that nice? Is it, how, how does it make you think? I mean, I, I, when I see you go into battle on Twitter, I'm there. So I'm in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, Jesse's going into battle, but we don't know each other. It's not like you know, it's have what's going on in my brain there, and is that a weird thing? Yeah,
0: that's, well, that's a like, good question. question. I, I encountered a weird version of that, a really nice but unusual version of that when we did the live events where we like met mm-hmm. actual fans, for lack of a better term, and it's um. I'm still not used to the idea that I have like actual fans. I'm incredibly grateful for it. uh, And I like that folks like my way of of understanding the world and will seek out my work. So, no, I I don't find it weird at all. I will say one of the weird things about having like a fairly successful podcast is occasionally you find folks who, um, and you have not done anything like this, but there are some folks who like (laughs) sort of email you too much or will try to like contact you on multiple platforms repeatedly and are just like, it's just like a little bit too much. Yeah. KW 6983. I met him at a bar across from the uh, Arlington venue. Um, so yeah, I know overall it's great. It's absolutely takes some getting used to because part of me is still surprised anyone reads anything I write or that they <laughs> listen to me. Uh, but overall uh, I like, I am very grateful that I have some folks who, who would call themselves fans.
5: Cool. I have a very boring follow-up question. Uh, yes. The One bit of Jesse single content I haven't consumed yet is your book. I bought your book but a paper copy, and because my brain is so broken, I can't not look at a screen, and it's not available on Kindle in Britain. So I was just wondering, is there any chance of a, that being digitally released in, in Britain at all, so I can, I can read it on my phone, and so I don't have to look away from my phone?
0: Yeah, shoot me. Um, I'm, I'm home in Boston. Now, shoot me an email, and I'll try to look into that when I'm back in New York this week, and I can hopefully at least get you an answer on that.
5: <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you.
0: um sorry to the folks in the queue i do have to uh i'm not calling you out neil (laughs) there's uh, trust me your your amount of emailing me is not uh what i'm referring to also when you've emailed me I've, i've asked you to email me uh Anyway, yeah, so folks in the queue, if you show up to a future room, I'll bump you to the front if you remind me. But I do have to wrap it up there. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. Uh, I started to panic because it was very unusual. We were 15 minutes in. I was still talking. No one was in the queue. Usually we get people in the queue very quickly. So uh, I started to panic, but then you guys bailed me out with some very good questions and comments. Uh, So, yeah, I hope you have a pleasant Sunday night, and uh, I'll be back soon. As always, tell folks about the show if you enjoy what I'm doing here. Thanks, guys. Good night.